Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Bianca Mitchell. And I'm Josh Green. Tonight, we celebrate International Women's Day by dedicating our show to four amazing women in New Mexico. We will hear from Dr. Melissa Riley of Indigenous Women Rising, Christine Barber of Street Safe New Mexico, Sandra Linda Lopez, and Professor Margaret Montoya of the University of New Mexico. Empowering women who focus on helping other women and families in New Mexico. You really don't want to miss these New Mexican women. Dr. Melissa Riley is from the Mescalero Apache Nation and is Executive Director of Indigenous Women Rising. She joins us to talk about their recent legislative advocacy and the importance of Indigenous women leadership. Speaking with Dr. Riley is GJ Radio Producer and Youth Coordinator, Katerie Zuni. This is Katerie Zuni with Generation Justice, and right now I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Melissa Riley, Executive Director of Indigenous Women Rising. Dr. Riley, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. And will you please introduce yourself a little more? As you mentioned in the introduction, my name is Melissa Riley, and I am the Executive Director of Indigenous Women Rising, which is a nonprofit organization that serves not just the state of New Mexico, but also other tribal indigenous folks around the country. I am also from the Mescalero Apache tribe, but I live out at the Pueblo of Laguna, and I've been working in the field of human services for over 20 years. And and I also serve as an instructor for a local university here in Albuquerque. And it's been quite a pleasure to share all of my knowledge, cultural and traditional experiences, incorporating that in the work that I do. It's wonderful to have you here. And if you don't mind, will you tell us a little bit more about the work and the mission of Indigenous Women Rising? Yes. So Indigenous Women Rising, we have three founding mothers to our organization. And our mission is really to just break down the barriers that prevent women from excelling in their communities and beyond. And that we also want to help in breaking down the barriers that limit our body sovereignty, our ability to make decisions on behalf of our own selves and our families and our communities. And we are involved in and three different types of programming at Indigenous Women Rising. And that is one we have, as far as I know right now, still the only Native American-only funded abortion funds here in the country. And we also have another program that is focused on Indian sex education, which attempts to provide a safe opportunity for young men and women also any sexual orientation to share a little bit more about their own sex education experiences and how we can break down those barriers and those misconceptions so that we have more healthy discussions about what sex education is in our own sexuality. And our third program is related to breastfeeding and birth justice and advocating for more mothers and more families to engage in the opportunity to breastfeed, which is considered our first sacred food. And our birth justice is our efforts are working towards allowing families to experience birthing at home instead of an institutional birth. 
We have other organizations around the country that are taking notice about the work that we do. And why that is so important is because this has been a very tough conversation. And when I talk about getting rid of the barriers and in giving voice to Indigenous women, a lot of this has been met with some controversy, opposition from even women and men in our tribal communities about their opinions of the work that we do, and it hasn't been all positive. With that being said, we have to keep moving because in order for us to continue to do the work that we do and to do it with integrity, we have to walk the talk. You know, we can't just talk about body sovereignty and women's rights, indigenous women's rights. We have to really be the people that we say that we are and lead. And I think right now that we are really breaking some glass ceilings within our tribal communities and opening up the discussion and getting people to talk a little bit more about why it is so important to have a, a voice and a choice over our health care decisions. This year's legislative session is nearing an end, but I know that Indigenous Women Rising is working on some really important bills. Can you let me know about what pieces of legislation you're working on? One of the most important ones that I, I want to bring to your audience today is we are actively working with House Bill 51, which repeals an unconstitutional law and removes abortion from our criminal code. And we have been working in collaboration with several other organizations, also referred to as the C4C, the Coalition for Choice. And we are one of two Native-run organizations involved in this coalition. And our work has been not just working in partnerships with these other organizations, but really getting up to the roundhouse every day and talking to our state senators or, you know, everyone, the legislators about the importance of body sovereignty. And that's how we like to frame it. And I must say that this year has probably been the most enlightening as far as people's passion on both sides of the aisle regarding this House bill. But because of our mission and because of what we so much believe in at Indigenous Women Rising and the work that we do, we believe that this is in line with our mission, you know, breaking down those barriers, ensuring that women have autonomy, that they have body sovereignty to make these decisions. And it's not always a social active you know, sexually active result of someone's activity. However, you know, pregnancies sometimes get terminated because of other reasons besides just making that choice on our own. It has to do with medical issues. It has to do with women that have experienced rape or incest or other forms of trauma. And as we've been working collaboratively with this House bill, one of the most important pieces of this giving our own work experience and knowledge of this issue from an indigenous perspective is that we actually have women calling from all over the country because we are the only native abortion fund available to them. Offering this as a resource to them, they do call us and ask for that assistance. And a lot of them are coming to us from a violent situation. Some are coming to us because of a medical problem or just because it's just not the right time and they do not want to proceed with the pregnancy. 
at this time. And where is the bill right now in the lawmaking process? In the lawmaking process, we have passed several committees. We are just waiting for it to be heard on the Senate floor. I believe right now we have a lot of support for the bill. And as I mentioned earlier, it's been an emotional journey for both sides of the aisle. And it's, I think, brought to light a lot of people's emotions and it's stimulated a lot of probably forgotten feelings about either people's or their own experiences, their religious beliefs, and so forth. So although I don't oppose that, I embrace it because I think that's what makes us so unique as a country is the diversity and the difference of opinions. And I think that everybody has a right to be heard. But at the end of the day, this has to do with our ability to make decisions with our own free will. Speaking of the legislative session, for this very program, we actually also interviewed Senator Linda Lopez regarding her bill for data on missing and murdered Native Americans, I believe it's raised. Can you comment on that bill or even the issue of missing murdered and murdered Indigenous women? I am so pleased to have had a conversation with Senator Lopez over a week ago. My colleagues and I were allowed to visit with her and to express our sincerest thank yous to, you know, being able to bring this topic forward and to expand the conversation within the state of New Mexico. The issue regarding murdered, missing Indigenous women as was discussed last week, March 1st, for Indigenous Women's Day at the state capitol. A lot of what we have seen in the past is a lack of opportunity for law enforcement or other criminal justice agencies to accept a missing persons report after a certain period of time. And it has been a long time coming that, you know, we've had a lot of Native women, not just here in the state of New Mexico, but all over the country, especially in the highline areas of our state or the border states, who have experienced women missing from the communities. And although the discussions that I've heard at the national level, it's almost like a romanticized type of topic where, you know, the woman is is missing and she's held captive or, you know, it's kind of dramatized in such a way and and through movies as well, we're actually bringing more realistic information to this. I think at Indigenous Women Rising, our organization is also pushing through conversations that have to deal with accountability. We really need to look at areas of enhancement within our tribal communities and for our urban Indian populations. As we get through this conversation, we really need to ask ourselves, why is it that women migrate off the reservation if they're not forcibly taken? Why is it that we are seeing women leave? That has to do with employment, lack of economic opportunities, education, health care, Sometimes our own criminal justice systems, our social systems are not adequate. If women go and report rape or other forms of violence committed against them, sometimes within our tribal communities, we don't have the capacity to address those needs or we don't have law and order codes that are up to date that provide proper justice and advocacy. So there's many other reasons, I'm sure, besides what I'm listing of why women leave, why they feel they compelled to leave. So hopefully we can bring these topics into the conversation so that we can do better on the prevention work 
but also put together some systems that will be more responsive. And, you know, even those types of systems I'm referring to could be increased cross-deputization between law enforcement, county, and state officials. It could be having better access to the national database that exists right now, which we still have difficulty accessing, especially when we look at sex offender registration and notification. And overall, as I mentioned last week at the Roundhouse, the tribes do not need another unfunded federal mandate. We have VAWA, we have SORNA, we have the Tribal Law and Order Act. We need money tied to these federal mandates in order for us to make a difference. So I'm hoping that with New Mexico taking this on as a state, that we may be able to be the beacon of hope for other tribal communities and other states so that they might be able to create a better system of response. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So our program is about International Women's Day, and I'd like to know how would you characterize the importance of the leadership of Indigenous women at this moment in time? Well, I can say that we are the prediction of our ancestors in that our leadership role as women has transformed in a positive direction in that not only are we the backbone of our families and the community, but taking ownership and helping each other as a group to break down the barriers and to not walk in back of our counterparts, but walking ahead and leading the movement and giving voice to what it is that we feel through not only our custom and tradition, but what feels right to us. I think that that is really what's prompting this movement. And that is so important because in the past, I think we've had more of a scripted role in those issues that are not just a white person's issue or a person of another ethnicity, but it's a human issue. And we all have the same experiences. And I think that now is the time, as I refer to a red storm coming, in that it's our time to take back what is ours, our body sovereignty, and our role at the table with everybody else. And if we really want to get away from a patriarchal society and really live up to what we say is a matriarchal society within our communities, we really need to force our way into the conversation and be counted. Is there anything else that you would like to add? To get more information about Indigenous Women Rising, please go to our website, iwrising.org, and, you know, look at what we're about, the work that we do, and the great women that we have working there, our founding mothers, Rachel Lorenzo, Malia Luarki, and Nicole Martin. And these three women do wonders, and they're both youthful and energetic, and I am a grandmother of three and my husband and, you know, five kids. And this is definitely an effort on my part individually to keep up with these three women. But this is one of the great things of that intergenerational contact between them and I is that they have an ability to educate me more about some of the issues that are impacting our youth population. And I'm able to share with them a little bit of wisdom. So, yeah, that's us in a nutshell. Well, Dr. Riley, thank you so much for joining us here at Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you. For Generation Justice, I'm Katie Zuni. Thank you, Dr. Riley, for your work for Indigenous women's rights and health care. 
I think it's really cool that your organization gives Native American women an option to have access to abortions. Thank you for helping Native women take freedom over their bodies. Our next segment is with Christine Barber, Executive Director of Street Safe New Mexico, a nonprofit that addresses the harmful consequences associated with life on the street for women. Speaking with Christine Barber is Media Justice intern Kenya Alonso. This is Kenya Alonso with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Christine Barber of Street Safe New Mexico. Christine, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you, Kenya. Will you please tell us more about yourself? I am the executive director of Street Safe New Mexico. Uh, we're a nonprofit that works with women on the streets of Albuquerque, um, but then also we work with women across the street who are sex trafficking victims. Thank you. Could you tell us more about the work and mission of Street Safe New Mexico? Um, our mission sounds really easy on the or simple on the surface. It's really just to um, make connections with women who are uh, currently in situations where they might be exploited, um, especially in ways where they might be either forced to sell sex um, by another person or forced because of circumstances to sell sex. So we go out and we stand in the middle of a parking lot and we put uh, bins of clothing on the ground, we put out pads and tampons, um, we put out baby wipes, and then we give out chocolate and we say, hi, how are you? Um, we've been doing that for 10 years. And so that has given us relationships with all the women on Central. And it, it is a way for us to make those connections and to give them services if they need it. Great. Thank you. How did you come to do this work on behalf of women? So in 2009, as most people probably remember, in February, they found the bones of the women who were killed on the West Mesa. And so at the time, I was volunteering for a homeless organization. And I thought to myself, how could that many women go missing? So between 2003 and 2004, 11 women go missing. How does it happen that that many women go missing and we not throw like some kind of like massive fit? But instead, we didn't find them and we didn't even know they were missing until their bodies were found in 2009. That is so not okay. So I was talking about this to other volunteers, and one of the women uh, turned out to be Cindy Jaramillo. She had been doing dates in 1999 when she had been kidnapped by a serial killer, David Parker Ray, the toy box serial killer um, in Elephant Butte. And he was getting ready to kill her and when she escaped. And so she said to me that her family, even though her entire family is in town and love her dearly, they wouldn't have reported her missing um, for days, if not weeks, just because of the lifestyle. And what she said was that she just wanted there to be a group that paid attention, to be that group that says, these women are going missing, or these women are having an issue, and be the advocate for them. And so that's what we did, and we got started, and that's how we made Street Safe. Well, great. Thank you so much for the work that you're putting into it. So it's March, which means National Women's Day. What does that day mean to you? I think it means that we get to celebrate all women, even those that are invisible to a certain extent, and that we also have to look at some hard truths and some hard realities about certain populations of women. So the women on the street, they are both vilified, and then they're also both desired by certain men. So what have we done as a society to help them? What have we done as a society to contribute to that? And as women, what do we need to do about that? 
Could you tell me about some of the barriers that you and your organization feel that you have broken or want to break? As an organization, Street Safe has started to break the taboo of talking about women who sell sex on the street and talking about prostitution and making it part of the conversation. And instead of this, you know, titillating thing where it's like, hee hee hee, we're talking about sex, it's more of a no, we are talking about women who sell sex. This needs to be a conversation. What I would want is, first of all, for people to stop viewing the women on the street in these very simple terms. Don't say, oh, that's just a prostitute and a prostitute is a criminal. Say instead, that woman is having to sell sex to get by. That makes her a victim. She's probably been forced at some point. She probably had to start underage. So have compassion instead of labeling. There's this huge segment of our population of women who are completely ignored and who we are comfortable with ignoring as a society. That is really weird to me. And so what I would want to have happen is for us to go, look, we have this group of women, thousands here in Albuquerque, who we need to not only acknowledge and say they exist, we need to go, well, what do we need to be doing to help them? and make them safer. Because right now, by making them invisible, by continuing to ignore them, we're making them complete prey for predators. It makes it easy for people like the West Mesa killer, like David Parker Ray, to take them and kidnap them. And whatever that support might mean to them, give it to them. Well, I think you're starting to break that barrier down just by showing as much love and compassion as you are showing all of these women. So thank you. What are some of the issues that women living on the street face? They face a lot of the same things that all women face, but extended issues that it isn't so, it isn't just that we have that time of the month, um, which none of us enjoy. Having your period every month is is something that's, it's a difficult thing and it's a thing our bodies have to go through. If you're a woman on the street, the added issue is you can't afford to take care of this basic bodily function because you can't afford to go buy pads and tampons. So whereas for our lives, we're just go, you know, pop over to Walgreens and buy something. They cannot do that. Not only can they not afford them, the area that they live in, which they are almost always on foot, they can't even find it. So they're having to do things you hear about only like in, you know, Places like, you know, the rural areas of India, which is having to use rags or having to use, you know, paper napkins and things like that. And so I think as women, we need to go, OK, you know what? That's that's not OK. We are we really have enough pads and tampons to go around and give these women. <laughs> uh, but more than that, we also have the idea that we want to feel confident and we want to feel that we have value and that we're, we're worthwhile independent of being a mother, independent of being a wife, that we are, that we have our own value, independent of other people. And so I think they struggle with that as well. And so we try to figure out different ways to show them that, um, which might sound like a strange thing. But uh, one of the things we do is um, if we have a couple come up, a male and a female, we'll say, would you like some chocolate? And they'll both say yes. And then we'll say, oh, actually, it's just for her. But if you're nice to her, maybe she'll give you some. The reason we do that is we're trying to show them that they are the person to us that is that is the person we want to interact with and that he has to ask her for permission. Normally in that situation, it's the guy who is the one that people go to and ask the questions of and that look to for the response. We're showing her that that dynamic does not have to be the case. And so, um, again, trying to show women, uh, no matter who they are, that they have value independent of all the people in their lives. <laughs> oh. That's great. Thank you. Are there any legislations or city ordinance that you would like to shed some light on? Um, There are a couple of things going through the legislature right now that are particular importance to us. One of them, which has passed both the Senate 
And the House, which hopefully we're going to the governor, is um, no longer charging people under the age or children under the age of 18 with prostitution. Instead, if police encounter someone under age 18 who is selling sex or being forced to sell sex, they will instead go to services. Right now, they actually can be arrested and put into detention facilities without getting any help or anything. And they're victims. They clearly are victims. The other memorial we're asking Senator Lopez to put through is one that talks about teaching the signs of of trafficking, how a trafficker might approach a teen, both boys and girls, because they're just as likely to be approached by a trafficker, how a trafficker might approach them, um, to teach that in schools. Because we will continue to have trafficking. We will continue to have women who are on the street who don't have much choices or men who are, who, are, who are trafficked as kids until we can say, look, this is what you need to be looking for, until we have those conversations and say, there are people who are going to take advantage. You need to know how they do that. Um, and so that memorial just says we need to look at that and start teaching that. How can the community help? Um, the community can give us money. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but we are a small nonprofit. And so first, the community can help by seeing the women and having compassion and saying, you know what, this is what they've had to do. This is what their circumstances are and not belittle them or not make it a joke that they're out there. Um, and the second thing is, is to just look at their own reasoning behind how they look at women on the street. Is it because they just can't have another group to care about, which, okay, I get. Um, or is it that they have their own their own views on what it means to sell sex and that if that view is inherited, meaning that you have never challenged that view. So, for instance, if you were brought up as I was as a Catholic, you were so, oh, selling selling sex is bad. You know, Mary Magdalene did that. She ended up being, a, you know, following Christ, but it's, you know, that's bad. You shouldn't do that. Why? I think we just need to ask that question. And so ask yourself that question. And if you still believe it, fine. That's, but at least ask yourself, is this something I actually believe, um, that this is bad for a woman to do this? There are um, 41 words in the English language that are synonyms for a female prostitute. There are two for men. So that just tells you that this is a gender issue, that women are definitely seen as the purveyors of bad um, and an evil intent when it comes to seducing, um, whereas men aren't. And that's just a we are allowing that uncomfortableness and that ta- the idea of taboo to ignore the, a whole class of women. Yeah, definitely. I agree that we need to go into our brains a little bit and ask ourselves, do I actually believe this? Is this something that, you know, aligns with my morals? Or is this something that I've been told? Is this something that I was raised to believe? So thank you. Exactly. So it's like, yeah, were you were you raised to believe that all that somebody on the street is in, inherently bad for what they have to do to survive? And if not, or even if you were, well, then let's look at that and see what the truth of that is. And ask yourself, do I, do I want to continue to believe that? Because I think it's really easy for us to not question that. I certainly didn't question it. When I first got started, it never occurred to me. I, oh, I mean, I think I was like anybody. I just didn't see women on the street because I was like, oh, I don't need to worry about them. They're out there because of their addiction. They're out there because of whatever. I get to ignore them because of that. Um, but the truth is... Most of the women out there actually were not out there because they're addicted. Um, 64% were not addicted when they started on the street. Um, they became addicted because the life is so incredibly difficult after two years. So 
my whole think my whole process of I get to ignore them because they're because they're addicted is not true. It's based on this whole fallacy that we have this this thing I wanted this misconception I wanted to believe to make it easier to ignore them. And the truth is, that's not the truth. So once I challenge that, what do I think? Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to add? So um, we are on social media. So we have our Facebook and Instagram um, accounts. Um, and um, we also try to do a blog. And then if people are interested, we do put out a list of all of the uh, the men who are currently attacking women on the street. Um, it's called the bad guy list. The women will come give us reports after they've been raped and assaulted. We put it onto a list and then we hand it back out to them. Um, all of that is available online. Going back to 2008, um, we do unfortunately have to do new reports every single week. And so that's a really good resource for people to know and to just, it gives descriptions of the cars and the men and kind of um, what the situation was. Christine, I just really want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come in and be interviewed, to just talk with me. And I really want to just express my appreciation for all the work that you are doing. I admire you so much and I respect you so much just because of all the love and once again compassion that you are showing it's something that takes a lot of i guess like soul and takes a lot of heart and so i just really from the bottom of my heart i really want to say thank you for all that you are doing well and thank you so much for having me on generation justice and and giving me the chance to talk about it great thank you this was kenya alonzo with generation justice thank you christine barber I think it's safe to assume that many men and boys tend to think of women as objects when really we should respect them for who they are and provide more support in their lives. segment is with Senator Linda Lopez. She joins us to talk about a bill she is sponsoring on missing and murdered Native Americans and that the data is needed, Senate Bill 453. And she shares her feelings about this topic as a New Mexican Chicana. Senator Lopez also shares some of her accomplishments as a woman in the New Mexico legislature. Speaking with her is Kateri Zuni. This is Kateri Zuni with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Senator Linda Lopez, who has served District 11 in the New Mexico State Legislature for 22 years. Senator Lopez, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you very much. Hello. Uh, thanks very much again for this opportunity to, to join you. And will you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your district? I, of course, am a state senator. I was elected in 1996, but officially sworn in in 1997. And, of course, that means 22 years in New Mexico State Legislature. And my district is in the southwest quadrant of Bernalillo County. So that's Westgate Heights and the South Valley. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. Since this week we're talking about International Women's Day, can you share with us a little bit of the experience that you've personally had that has helped to break the glass ceiling in the New Mexico legislature for women? I am the first woman elected from my community to go to the legislature. I was uh, 31 years old when I was elected, 
since my election, there have been other women that have come after me. So I feel that I had I, I broke um, through the glass ceiling or broke ground to say. And you know, being in, in the New Mexico legislature right now, I am the only uh, female chair. And uh, for a bit of time, um, I was the only woman on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I now have been joined by Senator Stewart. Now we have two women. And I also serve as chair of the Senate Rules for this is now my 17th year in doing so. So it's, it's an interesting journey because I am the only state senator to give birth during my term in office. Mm. And I'm a single mom. So it's a balance. It's struggle, but women do this every day. Yes, they do. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Senator. It's it's really inspiring to, you know, have an example like yourself to look up to, even outside of working in politics, just professionally in general. So thank you so much. This session, I know that you're sponsoring many, many bills, but in particular, will you please tell us about SB 453, which is for missing and murdered Native American data? Yes, and um, it's so sad to say that uh, New Mexico has not been capturing data as related to our Native American brothers and sisters. And where this all originated, for my information and for me to understand what we have not been doing, is listening, of course, to the national politics scene about Savannah's Law. Mm. And what I'm trying to do with Senate Bill 453 is to mirror what the uh, federal law that was introduced um, last year, of course, didn't go anywhere because of some issues in the Congress. But instead of us waiting, I wanted for New Mexico to begin to move forward on collecting data. And what this comes from, of course, is that in this country, we have an epidemic of murdered and missing indigenous women that we do not know, we don't keep track of, we have no numbers and in, in learning and reading much more about that and looking at what is here in New Mexico with our lack of data, I just felt it was responsible that we need to do this. And, and in fact, what we had this past week at the legislature, we had our first Indigenous Women's Day at the Roundhouse. I was very proud to work with a group of women activists who organized it. So coupled with that awareness of having our Indigenous sisters present, it's just the right thing to do. Thank you so much for that. And tell us some of what this bill means to you as a Chicana woman to be a part of this legislation. For me, and I mentioned this also, too, because uh, last month of February was the 10th anniversary of the murdered women that were found on the Southwest Mesa 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 years of still families not having any closure. I mean, they know where their daughters are. You know, it's part of that closure, but it's not total closure due to the fact that uh, we don't know who killed the women. The case has not been closed. As I learned more last summer when I was approached by um, a group of indigenous sisters who had been in Denver for the Indigenous Women Rising movement that's been going across our country, they had asked if I could help them uh, figuring out how we could move forward with a collection of data how we could you know, bring more awareness to this issue in our state. So it's been a journey this last summer for me as I uh, began to read, educate myself and what we don't have with regards to those numbers. And again, it's relational to the women who were found here in my own district, in my own neighborhood, here in Westgate. There's no closure for them either. And the commonality of that, we are all women of color. 
it's almost as though we are invisible for um, venues that you know collect information, that share information, whether it be on the news media or wherever. And so for me, even with celebrating the Indigenous Women's Day, you know, the conversation did wrap around, too, about the lack of information and how New Mexico, um, we have many of our Indigenous sisters who we don't know where they're at. Families know they're missing, but who's looking for them other than family? So for me, it's, it's interrelated. For me, it's invisible no more. Thank you so much. So going off of that, there was a report recently released from the Urban Indian Health Institute that named Albuquerque the second highest city for cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Myself, as a Pueblo woman, Albuquerque is a border town of so many Pueblos, and I just, yes. I don't know, we only think about the numbers or, you know, nameless faces, but I think about how very easily this could be my own cousins, my sister, my mother, my aunts, my nieces, and all the way down Mm -hmm. the line. Tell us a little bit more about your feelings, just hearing that statistic about the city that we call home. As I have uh, continued to read and learn more about where we are in this country, it saddens me. In, in so many different ways, and of course, uh, one and I continue to, to say it's invisible no more. It's because it, it just it, it hurts. As a woman of color, Chicana, you know, many of us share some of the history in in this state, and of course, of, of who we are as women. And to see that there is a, a lack of information, a lack of compassion, a lack of willingness to go out and figure out why this is happening. In fact, I think it was about a week and a half ago, there was a 16-year-old indigenous woman uh, who was found. um, She had just left, I think, an apartment where she was living with her family, and she didn't return, and then they found her body. So we know who she is, but what are they doing to try and find out? I mean, for me, that's a question that goes to the city of Albuquerque Police Department, with the sheriff's department, it goes to our state police, it also works with police forces that are also on, in Indian country. What are we doing? What are we not doing? The FBI, I mean, there's just so many questions to ask. And it's the beginning for me of trying to figure out what else can I do to help. Thank you so much, Senator. And what is the importance of data in working on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women? For us to have data, to have the numbers, it's important because it all goes back to the legislature and for government purposes. It brings more attention and more awareness where it is, it's not just, well, we know somebody's missing, but here it's concrete numbers where there's, there's a name, investigation, other information that we have that I believe we can also take back to the legislature here in New Mexico to fund programs, whether it be for uh, you know, mental health issues, for outreach with domestic violence, sexual assault, a lot of you know, other issues that exist in all of our communities. To me, it's, just, it's not just for one group of people. This is something that, that I call is also an epidemic, that at least it gives us something to go back and say, look, these are the numbers that are here. We need to do something more. Mm-hmm. I feel it will help to drive more of the legislation and, again, funding for programs. Thank you. And where is the bill now in the lawmaking process? Well, uh, we still have two weeks left in the legislature, so a lot does happen these last two weeks. 
It is in Senate Public Affairs for a hearing, I do believe, this coming Tuesday. Once it gets out of that committee, it'll go on to Senate Judiciary, out of Judiciary onto the Senate floor, and then onto the House for a hearing. My belief, my hope is that it'll get through both chambers and up to the governor's office for her signature by next Friday. Great. Thank you so much. And how can our listeners show their support for this piece of legislation? Please call. Call the governor. Let her know that this legislation is coming her way and ask for her to please sign it. You know, always a phone call or an email to committee members on either the Senate Public Affairs Committee or Senate Judiciary. Let them know that your listeners are supporting. Great. Thank you so much, Senator Lopez. And is there anything else you would like to add? What I'd just like to ask is that everyone who is listening for our Indigenous sisters, that the invisibility need not be anymore. That we all have to work together as women of color. It's one of the things that is out there, but it's true. United, we will not fall. We need to work together on this because it affects each one of us in many different ways. Thank you so much, Senator, for taking the time for us. And thank you for participating in our International Women's Day production. Well, thank you. And thank you for what Generation Justice does in our community, too. For Generation Justice, I'm Kateri Zuni. Thank you, Senator Lopez. I'm happy you're taking the initiative of fixing this epidemic on overlooked information on missing and murdered indigenous women. On this International Women's Month, we want to thank you for advocating for women and children. Now, a special commentary from Professor Margaret Montoya, Professor Emerita of Law and the Health Sciences Center out of the Office of the UNM Chancellor. Professor Montoya has been at UNM for 30 years, working on creating access for New Mexico's communities of color to education and law and medicine. She is a scholar on issues of race, ethnicity, and gender, and uses storytelling to increase understanding about creating a more inclusive educational climate. Professor Montoya shares a commentary of the Constitutional Amendment to increase funding for children's ages birth to five, called the Early Childhood Education Amendment. Buenas tardes. Yatahe. Good evening. March 8th is International Women's Day. So let's talk about girls, and specifically about infant and toddler girls. 82% of the babies that are born right now qualify for Medicaid, and that means they're born to low-income moms. So New Mexico right now is really struggling to figure out how to pay for early childhood education. That means for education for children under the age of five. And specifically, how to pay for education, primarily for moms, with babies from the age of birth to three. Right now, only 5% of those babies, that's 3,500 kids out of 70,000, are served by New Mexico's home visitation program. 
And the people who study this tell us that if you put money into that age group, zero to three, you will get the biggest benefits. Those investments yield the highest returns. But opponents of changing the law in order to use New Mexico's savings, including former Governor Susana Martinez, Senator John Arthur Smith, and the Albuquerque Journal, opponents of the amendment that it would take to increase the annual distributions, right now being considered to be a half a percent more, have consistently called this a raid upon the land-grant permanent fund. This is the fund that, in fact, has the money for education, one of the, the savings accounts for education. And New Mexico has one of the largest funds of this kind in the country. And the idea is that if you take some money out now, it damages the future financial health of this fund. So where does the fund get its money? Well, it comes from the assets, the resources that New Mexico has, from the revenue from leases and the royalties that are paid from oil and gas, and then the money that comes in when this money is invested in Wall Street. So these two industries, the oil and gas industry and Wall Street, suffered big problems over the last 10 years, significant downturns. And even though there were those problems, this fund grew by more than 200%. It grew from $8 billion to more than $17 billion. Did you hear that? Billions with a B. New Mexico has a huge amount of money in these funds. And the opponents to changing the law understand that when you use the word raid, that in fact it has extra oomph, it has extra power. You can make an argument based on the word raid, that they're raiding the fund. If we look at Google, it tells us that a raid is an attack on an enemy in warfare. <laughs> this proposal is anything but that. This is a policy decision, a governing decision about how to use New Mexico's wealth for its very youngest children. It's about making choices about how you use those investments that you have. Whether to use, as Governor Lujan Grisham said in her State of the State speech, a pinch, un poquito, of our considerable wealth, our fiscal capital, to develop the brains of young children human capital. Calling this change in the law a raid is wrong-headed. It's symbolic of the thinking that is called a scarcity mentality. It looks at New Mexico's wealth as being a pie that if you divide it and give part of it to young children, that it takes from everyone else. It takes from the future. But we can look at this pie in a different way. We could look at this pie as growing, that the education of children will grow the pie, grow the investments. And New Mexico is faced with a really difficult problem. It has a dilemma. 
because right now the state is ranked 50th, the state with the worst outcomes in terms of health and education for children. And at the same time that it is ranked at the bottom, it sits on enormous wealth. It doesn't have one permanent fund. It has two. And it has growing savings accounts. These are called reserves because New Mexico has been thinking about the possibility of the economy going down. It saves for a rainy day. But let's think about a family. What family would tell its children that they can't go to school, that they can't be educated? Because even though it has these big savings accounts, they can't use it for them now because it would mean that they wouldn't have those savings accounts for their children or their children's children. If we take away from the present, we do take away from the future. If we impoverish the present, we impoverish the future. But now I want to talk about something that's really hard. I want to talk about race and racial justice, racial equity. The word raid sounds like the arguments that were made about New Mexico becoming a state and about whether New Mexicans were smart enough to become citizens of the United States. These debates around statehood were about how fit were the local people, were the Nuevo Mexicanos, the native people, how fit were they to engage in self-government and manage these abundant resources, land and water and minerals. And if you read this history, in the local and national newspapers of the time and read congressional speeches, you will see that Nuevo Mexicanos were called ignorant and morally decadent. And they argued that, in fact, Nuevo Mexicanos did not have the intelligence or the moral character to control New Mexico's resources. And if you don't know this history, I suggest that you read Chapter 2 of Dr. John Nieto Phillips' book, the language of blood. But this kind of explicit racism of a hundred years ago is largely gone, and we should celebrate that. We are all better off for that. But words like raid used in this context does have a racial undertone. But raid does not reveal intentional racism of lawmakers, like was expressed a hundred years ago. The word instead reflects unconscious, institutional racism, the type of bias and prejudice that affects all of us. But we don't have to make biased decisions. We can interrupt that kind of thinking. We can use data. We can interrupt our fast thinking. We can listen to stories that undo stereotypes. We can cultivate an open mind. And we can adopt an abundance mentality in place of a scarcity mentality. Together, we can create a more optimistic now for New Mexico's girls and boys. And we should think about it on this day that honors women and girls. But I'm going to ask you to actually do something. I want you to contact your legislator and the governor 
Governor Lujan Grisham, expressing your support for early childhood education. You can Google your legislator and the governor and find out how to send an email, or you can call them. I hope you'll do this. Thank you, Emil gracias. Thank you, Professor Montoya. I love how you collaborated race and equity and early childhood learning. I feel like it's a whole new way to learn. I appreciate how you're pursuing this bill. The learning system needs to improve. We hope you've enjoyed this hour with inspiring women. We'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Melissa Riley, Christine Barber, Senator Linda Lopez, and Professor Margaret Montoya. Tonight's hour of radio was produced by Kateri Zuni and Roberta Rael. And thank you to our interviewer, Kenya Alonso. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the WK Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, the Kuhn Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. I'm Bianca Mitchell. And I'm Josh Green. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night. Come on.